0: It's Wednesday, August 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. Let me start with a quick programming note. It is a short week here at Market Foolery, as I said on Monday. I'm actually away this week, so this is going to be the last episode for this week. And if you're thinking, hey, what, what am I supposed to do on Thursday? What about industry focus? What about rule breaker investing with David Gardner? What about Motley Fool Answers closing in on its 300th episode of all time? By all means, If you haven't already, check out some of the other podcasts from The Motley Fool. With that out of the way, let me talk about today's episode. And I'll start here. You don't have to be a whiskey drinker to know the name Jack Daniels. You don't even need to be someone who drinks alcohol of any kind to know the name Jack Daniels. It's an iconic American brand. And the history of that brand has been, in my mind, enriched because of the relatively recent discovery of a man known as Uncle Nearest. The story is much better told by Fawn Weaver. She is an investor, an entrepreneur, she's written a couple of best-selling books about having a happy marriage, and when she saw a news story about Uncle Nearest, it set her on a path to her current job as CEO of the fastest-growing whiskey company in America. I got the chance to talk with her a couple of weeks ago, so here's that conversation, starting with Fawn talking about where she was when she saw a brief story in the New York Times about Uncle Nearest.
1: So I was in Singapore and it was on the cover of the New York Times International Edition. Journalist Clay Risen had written a piece that he describes uh, wonderfully as a lob, meaning there was only so much information he was able to gather through his one trip to Lynchburg and then spending time trying to do this work from New York. And it became very clear to him That the story needed to be told, but he wasn't going to have the time or resources to really dive into the story. And I have to tell you, he was right because I had to hire, I think it's 18, 19 archaeologists, genealogists, historians, conservators, and and literally pull documents from six different states, thousands and thousands of documents, to really be able to not just piece the story together, but to be able to prove the story. But I will tell you what brought me to Lynchburg was not this story about whiskey. It was not this story about Jack Daniel as a grown man. And in Lynchburg, they called him Uncle Jack. And the most respected men that would have walked down the street during that time were named Uncle Jack and Uncle Nearest. So Nathan Green, we know that as his legal name. But what we also know is he was an enslaved man and formerly enslaved people, a lot of times following slavery, chose to go by a different name. And that had to do with the fact that a lot of them were named after their slave owners or their slave owners' children. The, the largest slave owner in this area was named Nathan. And uh, yes. <laughs> and so you you kind of look at it and say, all right, there is a really good chance that he did not want the same name as Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was trading over a thousand slaves a year here. And so there is a really good chance. But what we know is, is when Uncle Nearest and Uncle Jack walked through town, it was nothing but respect. And as I began diving through this story, I, I write books, as you mentioned, about love. I don't intend on changing that. People keep asking me to write books on business. I'm like, I've got about 45 I can refer you to. I love them all. But what I can't refer you to is books on love written by powerful women. That I have to do for, by myself. <laughs> and, and But what really drew me to this story were two things. The first is if you look at that original New York Times article, there is a photo that was prominent in the article itself. And it was a picture of Jack Daniel with his crew. It's the only known picture that Jack ever took with his crew. But if you look closely at the photo, people notice that there was an African-American to his right, which in and of itself, taken in, in early 1900s, about 1904, that already would have been extraordinary. But if you really zoom in on that photo and you look, you'll notice that Jack Daniel, the most famous American whiskey maker of all time, has seated the center position to the black man. That is astounding. Jack is off center. Nearest Green's son is who's at the center of this picture with his crew. And so I knew that this story had to have been about more than just an African American taught Jack Daniel. You don't see center position to someone's son if all they were to you was a teacher. And so that was the first thing that drew me in. The second thing that drew me in is I then bought Jack Daniel's biography, 1967, written at the height of the civil rights era. So. If you know anything about what was going on here in 65 and 66 when it was being written and 67 when it was published, it was not a pretty time in in civil rights history, especially in the South. And so you have this biography being written by a white reporter from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that comes to a town called Lynchburg, Tennessee, to write the authoritative biography on the most famous white whiskey maker. Uh, And he includes Nears Green and his boys 50 times. And a biography this thick. Every single person who uh, the biographer was speaking to were Jack's nephew who took over the distillery, and then his nephew and his children, Jack's great nephews, the four of them that then took over after their father. And so you're talking to the people who knew Jack the best, who knew him the most, and they included Nearest and in his boys more times than Jack's own family. So, what that said to me was this story was not just about whiskey or a whiskey maker. This story was in part about an African-American elder and a white orphan who not only he taught, but who developed this incredible relationship and mentorship. But then following the Civil War, when Jack Daniel decided to take the distillery he had been working at alongside Nearest Green to buy that distillery, to rename it Jack Daniel Distillery, and he asked for Nearest to be his first master distiller. And so the story I was chasing when I came to Lynchburg was a story of love. And it's the story I found when I got here.
0: So at what point in this process, because I know you went into this and pretty quickly in the process, you're thinking, I'm writing another book about love. It's just different from what I've written before. At what point in that process do you decide to put the book idea aside for the moment and say, Actually, I think I want to start a distillery.
1: Didn't put the book idea aside. I was very much so writing it. But the home on our bottle, anyone who looks at an Uncle nurse bottle, there's a home on there. That is the home where Jack Daniel grew up. That home sits on the 313 acre property that we own, where the original distillery number seven and district number four sat. And Nearest Green is the only known master distiller for distillery number seven. And so you have this property that I've been in town for less than an hour at the library doing research before Jack Daniels eldest descendant walks through the door and offers her help because very quickly on word got around that a New York Times best-selling black woman <laughs> from Los Angeles was in town and, and doing and writing on this story of this enslaved man teaching Jack Daniel. You have to remember, if you go back to 2016, if you look at any of the articles that were written after Clay's piece, Clay's piece was not negative in the least. Clay's piece simply said, until now, we have known a white preacher and distiller as Jack's teacher. However, it's more likely that it was actually this African-American, this enslaved man who worked on the property of this preacher alongside Jack Daniel, who also was working as a chore boy. And so if you think about it, if I show up in town, why would you think a black woman from Los Angeles was looking for a story of love? I mean, it just doesn't even seem plausible, but that is why I was there. And so the eldest descendant uh, gets called to the library, once the librarian calls and says, hey, there's somebody here doing research on your family. (laughs) And she comes down and I could see in her eyes, I could see in her face and for very good reason, concern. And I looked her in the eyes and I said, I am not here to harm your family's legacy. I believe that the press and social media have this story wrong. And I believe that. And I listed all the reasons I believe that most of it coming from Jack's own biography. I said, if he wanted to hide a person or steal a recipe, or uh, this is the worst place to document all that. <laughs> and, and so I told his, his eldest descendant, I said, listen, if I do the research and I discover that Jack is not who I believed he is, and if I discover that this was not a story of love, honor, and respect of, as I believe that it is, Someone will come down here and pull the same exact research as me. Nothing that happens in the dark ever stays in the dark. It always comes to light. I said, however, you have my word, it will not be written by me. That is not why I'm here. And so she said to me, in that case, I want to help you. And she pulls out her cell phone and she gives me the names and numbers of Nierce Green's descendants. They grew up together. They ate around the dinner table together. They were still friends. And the last thing she said after giving me names and numbers and offering to help before she leaves out of the library, she said, hey, you know that farm that you read about in Jack's biography, you realize it's for sale. Of course I did not. Why would I think a property 150 years with a house still standing? No, absolutely not. I didn't know it was for sale. And so the long the the, sh- the long answer to your short question is the person who she then connected me with to take me to the home was her cousin, Sherry Moore. And Sherry Moore had been in the family business her entire life. And when she retired from the family business, Jack Daniel Distillery, after 31 years, she was their head of whiskey operation. And as we began diving more and more into this research, and I was sharing with them, information I found out about their family, which matched the story that I believed I was going to find here in Lynchburg. Then one day she says to me, you know, if you ever decide to honor Nearest with a bottle, I will come out of retirement to make sure you get it right. And not long after that, I was meeting with about 40 or 50 of Nearest's descendants. And I said, what is the one thing you think should happen in order to honor your ancestor? And they said, we think that his name should be on a bottle. He deserves to have his own bottle. And I literally called Sherry after that meeting and said, listen, if you will come out of retirement, I will raise the money. And that's how Uncle Nearest got started.
0: It's amazing, uh, in part because of the reaction from uh, the people that if you're just looking at it, if you're looking at this story in terms of sides, you can look at, well, there's the Jack Daniels side, there are the people on that side. And the reaction uh, is amazing for a couple of reasons, but one of them is it, re- it reminds me of um, in sort of the early 1990s when the small batch bourbon um, craze, for lack of a better term, started to get going. Um, you had Booker No, the grandson of Jim Beam, uh, Jim Beam really starting with their small batch bourbons. Um, there was this sense that all of the distilleries in Kentucky, while they compete with one another, they were all also all working together. There was a, a, a collegiality about this endeavor because they saw it as a way to Grow this segment. And that was one of the things I was thinking of when I was reading about sort of the reaction uh, from the, the Jack, some of the folks on the Jack Daniels side of this equation, um, because they saw it as a way to uh, sort of embrace uh, the history, you know, because let's face it, there's, there's a version of this story where that's not the reaction. There's a version of this story where the librarian calls and um, someone comes into the library to cause trouble of some sort.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And and the thing that I love about this story the most is, beside the fact that it's absolutely true, is the only reason we know who Nearest Green is. People give me so much credit and I always try to shift that credit because yes, I did the digging, but you have to understand that the only reason we know who Nearest Green was is because Jack took the time to honor him while Jack was alive. And then Jack's nephew, Lim, took the time to continue honoring Nearest and his children when he was alive, and every generation. Uh, so that's the only reason that we know. It, it isn't that I was able to just dig, 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 and find uh, near screen was the first master distiller and show a document that no one had seen. They had gone on record enough times <laughs> that it was very clear they wanted to make sure people knew who was Jack's first master distiller, who taught him, who was his mentor. That's extraordinary, because if you go up to the folks in Kentucky, and God bless them, I love all of them, I work side by side with them, but they all had African-Americans at their distilleries in the beginning. Name one of them. And so the only reason that we're able to honor Nearest Green as the first known African-American master distiller is because Jack named him. And I I think that's remarkable.
0: I wanna talk a little bit about the business that you have started and, Let's just start with where we are right now um, in this pandemic um, with COVID-19. How are your employees holding up and um, what has it done to the production side of your business?
1: Our employees are holding up fantastic. On the production side, we've ramped up. (laughs) So, we have have been selling like crazy. And so, there is... There is no time to slow that process down. And so we lay down anywhere between four and 7,000 barrels a year. That is not changing this year because of, of how crazy it is out there. And our team, you know, we made a decision very early on. And we began having weekly video calls with the entire company. And those calls were really, you could have just called them hope calls the entire conversation, we never talked about what challenges were going on in the field, what challenges were in our industry. We didn't care. The only thing that we talked about was our ability to not lose heart and our ability to overcome any challenge and that we had the team to do it. And the team believed it 100%. And so even though we were from home, Shelter in place, two months straight, not one person left the house unless they were going to the grocery store. I did not allow one person into the field during that period of time. And when we closed out each of the Q1 and each uh, Q2, when when we closed out Q1, because we on premise basically shut down in March of of this year so on premise the restaurants the bars and so when you have something like that happen you automatically think my god this is about to start tanking and when we closed out q q1 it was our sixth quarter in a row of triple digit gains i don't know many industries where you can just go quarter over quarter triple digit gains and so i remember uh, that earnings report going out to our investors and them going Oh, boy, I guess that's gonna stop for for Q two. Like we're not going to be able to see this again. And Q two was our seventh quarter in a row of triple digit gains. And so I think the thing that we have to understand about American whiskey is it is a native spirit and it is what people are going to drink, whether high or low. Good times, or bad times, and if we embrace that, which we have, and understand that yes, who's drinking it may change over this period of time, but there's still somebody who's gonna wanna drink American whiskey, then you're able to just keep pivoting. So I I can say that we have pivoted as an industry multiple times during this coronavirus, but this industry is solid and it's doing incredibly well.
0: Uh, it's amazing growth, and uh, I should just point out uh, for those watching and listening, um, Uncle Nearest, the fastest growing independent whiskey brand in US history. Um, all the more impressive to me because of the aging process. You know, good vodka takes a lot less time to make than good whiskey, um, yeah. I, which leads me to this. When you decide to go down the avenue of starting a distillery, honoring Uncle Nearest uh, by putting him on a bottle, was there any pushback from people you went to talk to, or was the story so great that you were beating off investors with a stick?
1: Oh, yeah, beating off investors with a stick is for sure. It's still, still, still the, to this day. And so, uh, folks will ask me, How do I set my valuation? Because I get so many incoming in- investor requests. And so, Seed Series, I set a valuation and said, this is where we are and series A, series B, same thing. And after each series, when I get incoming, I'd say, this is my next number. When I hit that number, I'll let you know, then I'll open up another round. And so we've done them a little different than I think uh, most. The interesting thing about coming into this industry is one that people may or may not expect is the greatest challenge that I would say my team faced is I hired an executive team of all women. Now, they're the best of the best in their fields, and I wasn't looking for women. It just so happens that the best of the best for this brand were all women. And I remember my head of my SVP of global sales and my head of whiskey operations, Sherry Moore and Kate Jerkins, when we were beginning this, we all had a, a conversation one day and realized we were having the exact same problem. And that problem was we couldn't get calls back. So we knew that we needed to be able to source a whiskey in Tennessee that was aged and that was still being made the way that Nears made it. There were only so many that were doing that. We were going to need to buy bottles and corks and and have a co-packer and all the rest of the stuff before we had our own distillery. We knew we needed help. We couldn't get any calls back. So I called my husband, who's an executive vice president at Sony Pictures. So all you have to do is Google him and know he's busy. I called him and said, babe, so we have just discovered that we're getting no phone calls back and everyone we're calling are men. We're thinking it may be a coincidence, but could you just test this theory out for me? And so we all sent him the names and the numbers of the people along with a brief synopsis of what we needed him to know before calling that person. And in every single instance, people that we had been waiting for calls back for weeks got back to him in five minutes or took the call. And the calls would all, by the end of it, would go, hey, do you drink beer? You want to meet at a a bar? Do you golf? You want to meet on the course? And so for, I know a a lot of women, that's bothersome. For me, I looked at it as less work because (laughs) if I could turn over some of these calls to him and he could make a very quick phone call and get it done, that allowed me to focus on other things. And so for the first year and a half, maybe two years, if you look at any interview that I ever did you will never see me reference as the CEO of Uncle Nearest. I'm the chief historian. I'm the co- never. People thought he was the CEO for the first two years. And I'm like, guys, all you had to do is Google him to know he wasn't the CEO.
0: I mean, get, get on LinkedIn, do, some, do a little bit of homework.
1: <laughs> but it worked. It worked. And, and he calls me one day and he says, babe, we're Remington still. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, I, I'm going to come back to the business side in just a second, but I, I, I would be remiss if I did not ask this question. And I'm, I'm not trying to intrude in your personal life, but because you have written a couple of best selling books on having a happy marriage, what was the reaction from your husband when, as I read it in one article, you had a birthday coming up? And he said, I I think I want to take us to Paris because we like to travel around the world. And you said, I have an idea. Let's go to Lynchburg, Tennessee instead.
1: (laughs) He was not happy about the 40th birthday. And I tease him that if something had happened to us here, then nobody would have known where to find us because he was so embarrassed that I had chosen for my 40th birthday to go to a little town called Lynchburg in Tennessee that he told everyone he was taking me bourbon tasting. So everyone would have been looking for us in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, he's an African American man. He's six foot four. He is a, you know, a, a big guy. Uh, the last place he wants to go is a town with Lynch in the name. I think it's fair. And, and so no, he was not interested and he ran through every city that he knew I loved around the world. And finally, after weeks of this, he says, okay, babe, I got it. I know you've been wanting to go to Prague. You've not been to Prague yet, everywhere else I had been. And I said, you're right, I would love to go to Prague. Let's do that for my 40th birthday, but let's go by way of Lynchburg. <laughs> and by then, my husband employs lobbyists for a living. That's a part of his job. And he says, you know, If I could just employ you as a lobbyist, boy, would I get a lot done because I lobby to no end. And so, what I wanted for my 40th birthday is what I got. And that was to chase this story, even if for only four days, which was what he said was the limit. We will go for four days and then we're leaving. But I have to tell you, once we got here and he met the people here, and they were amazing, wonderful people. And the way that things lined up so quickly. He was absolutely certain very early on that this was about more than whiskey and that for whatever reason, I had been the one chosen to tell this story. And and so it was not difficult at all after that point. I mean, we bought the farm on the second day we were here. (laughs) So yeah, it wasn't hard.
0: The business of whiskey is very different from the time of Jack Daniels. There are corporations, there are public companies, uh, Diageo, Brown Forman, which owns Jack Daniels, Constellation Brands. What is something every investor should know before they buy shares of a spirits company?
1: You know, I think you really need to know the leadership. And I don't think that's any different from any industry, is I learned very early on, by losing several million dollars, to not invest in a brand or a overall industry, you invest in the person who is leading that brand, and so you have to really look at who is leading Diageo, who is leading uh, Brown Form and Lawson Whiting over there, and then you have to look at their track record of leadership, and that will tell you all you need to know. Because in a moment like this with coronavirus, we've seen a lot of people make some pretty big mistakes, and If you look into our industry, I think we have been really, really steady overall. You've not seen too many make major decisions. Now for craft distilleries, which we technically fall within, uh, I'd say a lot of them made mistakes. The moment things started going bad, they began laying off and furloughing very quickly. Well, then that makes it very difficult to get your people fired up and ready to go the moment shelter in place ends. And so those leaders who decided to to stick with their employees and say, listen, we are not going to make permanent decisions for a temporary problem. Those are the ones that I would back. Uh,
0: What, uh, to the extent that you have a crystal ball, what Does the next year or two look like for Uncle Nearest Distillery? Uh, I'm assuming an eighth consecutive quarter of triple-digit growth is is without question. Ninety days away. But um, uh, where do you want to take this distillery? Because there are people who get into the beverage business, whether it is alcohol, whether it's beer, wine, uh, certainly uh, non-alcoholic beverages, and their goal is their end goal is to sell to someone enormous. Coke, Pepsi, Mm -hmm. or a Constellation brand, a Diageo, that sort of thing. What do the next couple of years look like for Uncle Nearest?
1: Yeah, my goal is to not to sell to any of the big guys. It is the exact opposite of that. And and a part of the reason is, is number one, there has never been an African-American to lead a major spirit brand, period. I would be foolish to come in and make history and to be the first and then turn it over to one of the big guys because, in case you hadn't noticed, All of the big guys are are white male. And so then we no longer have (laughs) someone in that that place. But for Uncle Nearest, you mentioned it earlier, it's the fastest growing independent American whiskey brand in US history. I'm not content with being the fastest growing American whiskey brand. I want to be the fastest growing American premium spirit of all times. And the only one who has beat us at this point uh, in their lifespan is Casamigos. That's who we're going after, not because they're not fantastic, but because they're tequila and American whiskey is the native spirit. And that is who should have the record in America. And that's what we're going to do. Uh,
0: Last question before I let you go. And I appreciate your time because I can only guess at how busy you are, particularly during this time. (laughs) Um, I have been to the Uncle Nearest website. I have a bottle of the 1856 on its way to my home. How would you recommend I enjoy it?
1: Oh gosh, it depends. You you already said that you love whiskey, right? Yes. Okay, well, Uncle Nearest is the most awarded American whiskey of 2019, so far of 2020. I say enjoy it neat, because the world has given it every double gold there is, the world's best, best Tennessee whiskey. If you go across the spectrum and just look for what whiskey ranked best, 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 90 top awards in, in two years. So I'd say drink it neat, it's how I drink it.
0: Since I had that conversation with Fawn Weaver, the bottle did arrive and I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you're not a whiskey drinker, this is one of those whiskeys that makes a great gift for someone in your life who is a whiskey drinker, in part because there's an amazing story that's a part of it. If you want to learn more, just go to unclenearest.com.